Children might be our greatest philosophers. Their curious minds want to know why. Might we start a philosophical cultural revolution in childhood? Don't be, don't be that uh, eager to introduce the children, the big philosophers' names. Start with their own questions. Start their own questions are the questions the philosophers have been thinking of for thousands of years. But the, the children are already thinking of them. We just need to continue the dialogue. Today, a dialogue on philosophy and children. What are the philosophical questions children naturally ask? How can we recognize these questions as philosophical? Engaging children in philosophical dialogue inside and outside the classroom, in the home environment, or in literature. Why is philosophy important to children and adults as we work toward building a moral and ethical society? Even adults need philosophy. We need to ponder the big questions. We cover this range of important topics through two books Gareth Matthews' Philosophy and the Young Child and Matthew Lippmann's Philosophy in the Classroom. I'm Keaton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Shofei Han, one of the preeminent scholars and thinkers on the philosophy of children. I met Shofei during graduate school at Louisiana State University, where we spent many long, glorious hours pondering philosophical questions in our academic courses, reading groups, and writing. Shofei is one of the most philosophically engaged people I know. She has whimsy and joy for life, nature, reading, and children. She always makes me think and inspires wonder. We recorded this conversation in December of 2020. You know, one of the questions I always try to ask people is to talk to me about their reading life, the history of their reading life. I'm, I'm just, I'm genuinely curious about how people think about that topic or what they reflect on when they start to think about how they would tell me about the history of their reading life. That is a good question because my family, they don't read a lot. So I'm probably the only one who reads back then when I was a kid. Um, I guess I feel like there is a connection for me between trees and books. Mm. Um, my hometown and my house, no, my, my parents' house is in an area where we are by the very end of the neighborhood. And behind their house was a bunch of trees. It's like a small forest. And there, those river went through the trees and my day started from I walked to the river to wash my face, 
to stay there just to watch the sunrise and to hear uh, the sound of the water and their bird chips. Then I just walk back to have breakfast. I just feel like those and also the texture of the book. I feel like those are naturally connected for me. So whenever, and I had a lot of time back then, my middle school was just easy. <laughs> I had a lot of time. So usually I would just stay by the river or stay in the trees, grab a book to read. And when I cannot do that during the school days, I just feel like whenever I touch the book, I feel connected to like to the trees, to the nature. And also in Chinese, in Mandarin, the word of, um, books is shu and the word of trees is shu. So they actually have the same pronunciation, just the different tone and different characters. Um, and also, as we all know, the paper was made from wood. So I just feel like that connection just touched me from the very beginning. So I don't even know why I just feel like naturally connected probably. Is, is seeing my environment, how I grow up, how I interacted with the nature a lot, um, just made me feel naturally connected to the texture of the book, the smell of the book and the space. When you open the book, you feel like all of a sudden you fell into that peaceful space that's nothing else is related to you. It's all you have is the world in the book. That was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. So started from college, I started to really interested about kind of like some heavy topic books, either it's novel or it's theory or philosophy or psychology books. I just like specifically fascinating about the books talk about human beings, like our mind, our thinking, what's the meaning of life? how life is supposed to be, uh, what if so-and-so, what's the meaning of death? I just like starting from college, I specifically fascinated about those. And I started to talk to, think about the questions of the meaning of life. What if I die tomorrow? What I want to do today? Or what if I die in three months? What I want to do now? from like the last year of high school then the first year of college I thought a lot about those questions and that's when I started to read a lot about the theory and the philosophy of those books and then eventually um, I just choose to do psychology as my major in college and then I switched to curriculum theory um, which deals more about you know the curriculum theory and also the philosophy and then eventually when I came to LSU, I, I was still fascinating about the theory and philosophy. So what, so what were you reading in college that helped you to like start to think about those things? You, you were a psychology major, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is one author, he's Chinese, but his name is Shi Tie Sheng, um, spelled as S-H-I-T-I-E-S-H-E-N-G. So he's an author that writes a lot about life, also through some, some of his stories. Um, he is- He's a philosopher in, or he's a he's, novelist he's or- a, He's a novelist. Okay, he's, a novelist. he's a fiction writer. 
Uh-huh. Right. Uh, he's a novelist, but he writes, I think he mainly writes nonfiction novels. He talks about the life um, back in his uh, time was 1950s, 60s, 70s. And he talks about, uh, he talks a lot about the ironic perspective of the society, of the reality that most people may probably not dare to say so, or is not brave enough to talk about how you really feel during some embarrassing moment or some, mm. you know, not positive moment. And he was, he was so brave and so in depth talking about those moments in life, which is real. We all have to deal with that, right? It's, so I, mean, I feel like that was um, fascinating. By the way, in my reading, I prefer non-fiction fiction reading a lot. I just like when hmm. people talk about the strong, heavy, real stories in real life more than the fictions. Um, I don't know why, but partially because I didn't read a lot of fictions when I was a kid. I didn't have much resources. So when I started to, when, when, when I can buy books, I probably didn't have a lot of option to read fictions as well. Mm -hmm. If I have to add one more thing, but we already talked about this, I do want to share how much I love picture books or children's literacy. And one of my favorite book for my whole life, I know it's hard for people who read a lot to choose one book. I mm. never had that problem. Mm -hmm. My favorite book for my whole life so far, and I believe it will be in my future as well, is The Little Prince. It's interesting to me because I, I remember talking about this in graduate school with you. Mm. I didn't change, and, right? <laughs> and when I invited you onto the podcast, I thought for sure that was the book you were going to choose. I said, oh, Shofei's going to choose The Little Prince. But you didn't. Um, and that's great. Uh, why is that your favorite book? It's a um, philosophy book. You think it's a children's philosophy book? Not only that, first, there are so many, um, you know, ways of thinking. It's just like, it's so back to the nature of the thing rather than the socialized institutionalized system. Like at the beginning, when the little prince asked the pilot to draw a little shape, and the pilot tried one time and two times, because his drawing is not that good. And then eventually he draw a little box. He said, here's your ship. And the little prince said, is he sleeping in the box? The pilot said, yes. And the little prince said, is he really small? And the pilot said, yes. You know, like, when the kids believe there's a ship in the box, everything just makes sense. And that is the beauty of, and also the huge difference between the kids and the grown-ups is kids believe, we don't believe. Kids believe. So think about all the things we do. When we believe, we're more immersed and we enjoy our lives way much more when we believe. And it's all about belief. Like, I just feel like that's so beautiful. It's all about belief. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I thought was really, I'll say sad, while I was reading these two books that you had us read was this idea that they both seem to suggest that children are naturally inquisitive and curious, and that society and the education system specifically beats out of them their inquisitiveness, right? So that by the time you become an adult, you have absolutely no interest whatsoever in asking philosophical questions. And in fact, you shy away from them because you find these questions to be frightening, scary, because there's not an answer. You know, I I don't know if you think about that at all, but that was just one thing that stood out to me about the two books you chose was this idea that, you know, we, we really just don't have any sort of philosophical inquiry at all in our society. Yeah, I, as I choose those two books, well, the title is Philosophy and the Young Child, but I do feel like this book is so necessary even for higher education is because, you know, some principle or some ideas is just so fundamental that I feel like all educators need to be aware of, including parents as well, Mm -hmm. need to be aware that how much the kids can do and how less we know about the kids and how much wrong definitions and the strategies and the research conclusions we believed about child, about how we should educate them. How did you even find these books? Why, why did you choose these two books? Because, you know, you're broadly interested in this idea of teaching philosophy to children, but also philosophies of childhood. So these two books in particular are important for what reason? Mm. First, I think these two books are very fundamental in philosophy for children. So the author, Gareth Matthews and um, Matthew Lipman, they are the two fundamental authors in the area of philosophy for children. Um, So it's like without them, there's no such area. Well, there will be some other person will start this area. But uh, as of now, they are the two fundamental person in starting this area. And also, um, they two kind of interpret or start this area in two different perspectives. As you can tell from the title, this one is philosophy and the young child. So Matthews basically try to look at the child and childhood from a philosophical perspective. So people usually call this philosophy of child or philosophy of childhood is a of in the middle. And this book is more like bring philosophy to children. So it's philosophy for children. So uh, Lipman talk about principles, strategies, ideas of how to conduct more specific, more accurate, I think is how to continue children's philosophical Mm. thinking (laughs) because they already have it there. But these are just some ideas, strategies of how to not kill their philosophical thinking. 
by you know creating the rich space by be aware of how meaningful their questions are um, so from two perspectives i think those two authors are really fundamental and also i just feel like it's so fascinating and sad when we look at the questions the young kids brought up and the questions our college students bring up. Like the first page of this book, which I have a quote on. Yeah, this, read the quote, read the quote that you've selected here. Okay, so this is, uh, this is a, a child, his name is, I'm not sure whether it's his or her name is Tim. She, he is, let's just consider that's a boy, about six years while busily engaged in licking a pot, asked, Papa, how can we be sure that everything is not a dream? <laughs> and if you keep going, there are a few other questions that's amazing too. So a boy is eating an apple and he's saying, this apple is not alive because it's now on the tree. So the boy started to questioning what does life mean? But when we talk about groceries, we talk about, oh, look at those apples. They are so fresh and they are good for you. So we, we talk about it and how the kids think about it. It's just fascinating. They already started to think about the, what does life mean in their life. And they also talk about the end of the world or where do I come from and where I'm going. Apparently that's the, the, the question of death in philosophy. And they were fascinated about those questions. Probably, you know, at the very beginning when the kids ask all those hard questions or questions with no specific answers or questions like too big to give a answer or one answer, I think that is the body without organs as Deleuze and Guattari talks about. That is where the thinking starts to grow. That is where we don't know where we are going, but we just have so many questions pondering our mind. And the next step is you seize those moments and you reason with the children you ask a few more questions to follow up of, oh, really? So why do you think that way? What are your reasons? What do you think? You think this is real or not real? What are your reasons? And to follow up with, after they see the reason, so do you think this is consistent with what you just said before? Mm -hmm. And then follow up with, do you have any new ideas? You feel controversial to what's your the ideas you had before. So eventually the kids grow or build their own way of thinking. And that is very important. Going back to like the Matthews text and this, this quote that you pulled out, how can we be sure that it's not all just a dream? I feel like, you know, he goes through and he explains how he would reason with the child to try to dissect what the limits are of understanding the dream state versus the living state, right? 
And I think it's in that book that he has this great chapter where he uh, critiques Piaget, for example, and says like, you know, Piaget, the sort of like penultimate child psychologist, child development person that we all learn about if we're in education, you know, was not interested in these questions that kids would ask. He would, he would see a question of like, how can we not know that everything is just a dream as indication of someone being not quote unquote developed. But Matthews is saying, no, that is like a really profound question. And as I was reading the book, I, I was having like these, all of these, you know, floods of, of thinking about like, well, yeah, what does that mean? Why haven't we talked about that? Right? Like it's, it's not, it's not easy to understand if something is real or if it's a dream. It's not easy if you've had a dream that's so vivid that you feel like you've experienced it to understand the, when you're in state of consciousness, awake consciousness. It's not so clear sometimes that that wasn't a real thing that happened to you. Why mm -hmm. wouldn't we talk about that with children? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. So we have those big questions like, what is life? What is time? But eventually we all know that there's no specific answer. Is like when we develop our value system or our worldview is we develop how we interpret or we understand this concept with our own ways of reasoning uh, and also thinking of it and also to defend of it if we have someone question or have someone try to dialogue with us, if we believe so and so, we need to have our own reason, right? And also we need to keep reasoning it to question what we believed is still like acceptable based on our reasoning system or our thinking system, or we need to be more aware of the new ideas so we can reflect on our own thoughts. So for me, I feel like it all depends on how we deal with or how we consider about the very starting point. So do you consider the starting point when the kids have no answer as the point of lacking of or not knowing, or you consider that as reach of possibilities to grow to themselves? So I feel like that is so um, fundamental in education. And that's why when I had the chance to teach either at high school or at elementary school, I choose to teach at elementary school, kind of like try to save, not save is probably too, too much, but try to catch those precious moments, questions, thinking before they disappear if that, that makes sense, or if I can do anything to protect the kids' thinking, um, to, pro to, to probably just even to listen or dialogue with them about their thinking at that stage. So, so they have a few seeds that will eventually grow in their mind.
I think that that Lipman has a beautiful discussion on dialogue on page 107 that we can go and could, I mean, to talk about uh, some close point as well. So that's, I feel like that's fascinating. That's where the dialogue, like the meaning of dialogue. Why, why don't we start from the dialogue? Because I okay. really love that quote because one of my favorite quotes in this Lipman book is on page 24, I believe. Mm -hmm. Dialogue is one stage of that awkward and gross processing of experience that must take place if raw experience is to be converted into refined expression for children. At any rate, dialogue is an indispensable phase of the process. And also on page 22, at the last second paragraph, very often when people engage in dialogue with one another, they are compelled to reflect, to concentrate, to consider alternatives, to listen closely, to give careful attention to definitions and meanings, to recognize previously unthought of options, and in general to read to perform a vast number of mental activities that they might not have engaged in had their conversation never occurred. So I just feel like that's fascinating how dialogue in our classroom, either it's in elementary K to 12 or it's in higher education, will help us so much more because in dialogue, you are quote unquote, pushed to think more, but in an informal way and also in an inspiring way because before the dialogue started, there are a lot of things that you, like as he says, like on thought of options that will pop up during the dialogue. And also there will be different perspectives that maybe you think of because in the dialogue you listen and you are aware of the others. And I think uh, one of the one of the thing or the the beauty of philosophy for children, as Lipman and Matthews talk about, is philosophy for children will make people be aware of the others. Be aware of the others means be aware of the difference. Be aware of the difference means you're going to think beyond your own thinking. Oh, yeah. one of the things I was going to say was like you know, they, they do emphasize the dialogue part so much. And I felt like they were advocating for an educational reform away from banking education and towards dialogic education, right? Which now we associate so much with Paulo Freire and other people. But one of the things that they were talking about in the book that I thought was really informative for me was just this idea of Dialogue also happens in the reflective period after the dialogue. That like, ch you know, children or, and I think adults too, I don't think any of this is like the, pur the purview of just children, even though that's way, the way it's framed. But you go home after a dialogue and you think more about what was said in class and that's continuing the dialogue internally. Or maybe you go and you talk about it with someone else at home, right? So I, or, or like they, they also say, you know, sometimes people don't contribute, but that doesn't mean that they're not contributing because they're listening and they're processing what everybody has to say. So I thought all of those things, 
were really important takeaways of that particular chapter on like how to facilitate a dialogue and to understand that it happens in an ongoing fashion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love it. Dialogue happens after dialogues, and that's how we activate their students' thinking. It's like, for example, in the classroom, you know, we we have been criticized about this lecture-centered teaching, either in K to twelve or higher education. Mm-hmm. And so, once we start the dialogue, even we only have ten minutes of the dialogue, that will benefit a lot. Because of the reason you just said, dialogues happen after dialogue. So even we just had ten minutes in class, but that opens up the space, and they will keep pondering on what we talk about in the classroom. And I'm pretty sure after our conversation today, tonight, I will have so much more ideas. Like, oh, I should have talked about that, and I have, <laughs> you know. So that's that's the beautiful part of the dialogue. It's just like it just. Activate and generate more thoughts and ideas. So that's why I feel like to have this open dialogue is so important. And also, how to facilitate a good dialogue is not easy. And a lot of、um, part like is first probably started from professors, teachers, like how we facilitate the questions. And I found it's very interesting that he gave a few examples of what questions looks good. But not necessarily a good question to facilitate or to、mm-hmm. encourage thinking. For example, the question we usually ask:、um, "What is your opinion on this matter?" Very common question, right? What are your beliefs on this topic? Do you agree with what has been said? That's very general, and also it could be answered in one sentence or two without a lot of thinking. So instead,、um, Lipman suggests in the philosophical discussion, ask questions like this instead: What reasons do you have for saying that? Why do you agree or disagree on that point?、Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that expression? How are you defining the term you just used? Because、oh. we use the concept. For granted, but how you define it specifically is what you are saying now consistent with what you said before?、Mm-hmm. Because usually a lot of debating, especially the political debating recently, if we continue a reasoning process, no more than three rounds, many of the you know debates or statement will prove themselves wrong because it's just not consistent with what the previous said or not consistent with the evidence. So those questions are like, can you clarify that remark when you said that? Just what is implied by your remarks, and what alternatives are there to such a formulation? So by those questions, you will make or kind of push. The student to think more because in order to come out with the why, they need to think, think really think of why or what are my reasons and how this point is consistent to what I just said before. So that will facilitate a deeper thinking from the beginning of how do you think of this matter. So I think asking those questions. Is very important too. Other than you know the kids themselves have the ability of thinking.、Uh, as Lipman said here, a good discussion is when minds meet. It's not necessarily meeting words. 
is not necessarily spoken. It, it could be silent. It could be someone listen to our podcast after and they feel, yeah, aha, right, exactly. So no matter what form it is, a good discussion is when the minds meet. Litman stresses throughout the whole book that the, the whole philosophy for children program is about helping children develop their own voice, their own way of thinking. He doesn't use voice. He says their own way of thinking. And mm -hmm. that's your third quote that you had pulled out from page 67. I wonder, do you have it if you would, if you would read it? Yeah. So the quote is, Notice that we do not say, say what can be done to give their lives meaning. Rather, the only meanings that ch children will respect are those that they can themselves derive from their own lives, not those that are given to them by others. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so often, especially when we teach our students by seeing students People usually consider students as a, you know, need to learn from the course, from the lesson. And we teachers kind of sometimes are kind of eager to give them what they need to know, to give them the theory, to give them the definition. But in order to make the meanings of the concept we are learning, the theory we are learning, the knowledge we are learning is to let them build these personal meanings to themselves. I think that is very important. And also dialogue. The eventual point of having the dialogue is to, one is to help the kids to form their own way or to get clarified about their own way of thinking, like how mm -hmm. they think about this topic in, based on their personal experience and their mind. That is one important. You cannot just give them the theory and let them believe it. But the thing is to help them to clarify how they think of this and what is their opinion of this. And the second, um, the second purpose is to strengthen their understanding of the issues involved in their holding to the briefs they do hold. It's like, okay, you tell me you believe in this, then tell me your reasons. Then I'm going to question your reasons. I'm going to question your beliefs. If you truly believe in it, you will be able to defend your beliefs. So that is eventually become your understanding, your own belief. So I think those two goals or two purpose of dialogue is kind of different from what many people would think of is still based on the personal meaning making and the personal belief developing, but it's not a close end. It's based on the reflective thinking, the questioning that you strengthen your belief from your reasoning and from the reading and from the dialogue. I wanted to ask you about something in the Lippmann book that I thought was pretty, something that piqued my interest. 
toward the end of the Lippman book has to do with their discussion about how a philosophy for children program can help us to develop a model of moral and ethical education. I'm fascinated and piqued about that conversation because I think we don't spend a lot of time in modern education talking about morality or ethics. So, you know, there's this quote on page 157 in the Lippmann book that I pulled out uh, and on page 166. I, I kind of want to read both of them, but this has to do with moral and ethical implications of this work. Mm -hmm. the, the, mm -hmm. the first quote is, quote, to think of human individuals as innately good or bad, or of society as innately good or bad, is to foreclose all possibility of determining through inquiry what is responsible for each situation as it stands and how it can be improved, end quote. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that one of the things these books is trying to get us to do in education and just even if we're raising children or in our life in general is to understand both context and also to try to split us out of the dualities of our thinking. That we, we always think of things as good or bad. We always think of things as right or wrong, black or white. But philosophy forces us to sort of think about these things in a more nuanced way. What's good in one situation might be bad in a different situation. What's right in this situation is wrong in that situation. Or what's right for me might be wrong for somebody else. And, you know, getting children and other people to be able to think about the complexity of that is very difficult. It requires us to understand philosophy. What do you think about that? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so glad you brought out this point. And these, like the issue of morality and ethics has been bothered me this year, only in the previous few years. Oh, I bet. I think in this book, what Lipman pointed out is the more moral education has been could be amplified in philo philosophy for children practice through two ways the logical thinking and the affective thinking mm. either one you know they are equally important you cannot address one over the other and mm -hmm. you cannot ignore one over the other and I think that is very important for us to know because more often when people mention about philosophy or philosophical discussion or philosophical debating, they go to the logical side, which is important, right? But also there's the effective side. The people's emotions, experiences is equally important in think about it. And in doing so, I think he has a few suggestions I found very interesting or very helpful for me to understand how that be really practiced in, in, in the classroom or in education that on page 172 to 175, 
like he has a few suggestions. But one thing I feel very important is the concept of consistency. It's like, for example, he gives a few examples about how to the teach how to teach the kids don't lie. It's like you don't only just tell them don't lie, but right. you talk with them, and also we practice this in our action, and also the kids will be constantly be reminded or be questioned or be reasoned like, is this what is what you say and what you do be consistent with each other? Because once you lie, you're going to have a bunch of more lies to make this not be found out by people. Or once you lie, you're going to have, you're going to like rearrange the things which is not consistent from what you, you know, personally would like to do. So they said this consistency is very important in moral education instead of telling the kids or the people what is right to do because we don't know what is right. In, in the process of building the moral system is keep using your reasoning and keep thinking about whether this is consistent or not. And after that, the kids or we, we will have our basic thinking system and we'll be able to have the thinking capacity to think about the future controversial issues and to make our own moral decision or moral choice. I'm glad you brought up the thing about the affective because that does come in so strongly. And, you know, along those same lines, Littman and them seem to suggest that it's it's not, well, two things really that I want to say here. One is it's not pronouncements that are going to get people to be morally or ethically correct. It's only experiential learning that will help them. And, and part of that experiential learning might be dialogue, as we've been talking about through our entire conversation. Uh, giving them the experience of understanding what it means to lie will then help them to understand what the ramifications of that are. And their solution to it, of course, is literature. <laughs> they say, which I think is genius, right? I mean, it is just great. They're like, you can't, this was my other quote that I was going to read when we started this section, mm. right? It's on page 166. So right around this same section, Littman and them say, quote, we cannot expect to encourage children to respect persons unless we acquaint them with the full implications of the concept of a person, and this requires philosophy. Nor can children be expected to develop an ecological love of nature without some philosophical understanding of what nature is. The same thing is true of terms such as society, thing, wealth, truth, and countless other terms and phrases which we constantly employ, end quote. So they go on to say, exposing children to literature and vast amounts of literature is the only way that we can actually do this. And then engaging them in dialogue about, okay, well, how can we understand a person? How can we understand freedom? How can we understand society? How can we understand wealth from multiple perspectives? And I just thought, this is everything that's missing from our society right now. This... This book was written in 1980. Yeah. 
And here we are 40, 41 years later, practically. We, did we do it? I mean, it's like we didn't do it. So I, one of the things that I was really intrigued by in the Matthews book in particular was the way that he talks about the importance of children's literature. I feel highly underread in the children's literature area. Like maybe I just didn't read those books as a kid. Like, I don't know. I didn't read Frog and Toad. I didn't read C.L. Lewis. I didn't read like <laughs> Morris the Moose and like all this kind of stuff. But these questions, the way that he describes these philosophical questions that the books are taking up. I never read Alice in Wonderland, Wizard of Oz, you know, all those stories. Did you read those books growing yes, up? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, yes. There's, like, there's like a whole world that I'm totally not aware of in my reading life because I never read any of that stuff. That's interesting. Can I ask you why you never read it? I don't know. I read like Lord of the Rings. I, I read a lot of, uh, we had these like Little House on the Prairie books that I read. I read like all the Laura Ingalls Wilder stuff. Of course, I grew up in the Midwest. So that was like kind of a staple thing. We just never had any of those books that I now see are so staple to the way that people think about these topics, but like, yeah. You know, so, so like, again, like something that blew me away when I was reading it in the Matthews book was when he was talking about like in the textual copy of the wizard of Oz, right. The actual L Frank Baum story, not the movie version that like the tin man becomes the tin man because he actually has his living body replaced by pieces of tin. And it raises these questions. And I thought, oh, Donna Haraway, the cyborg manifesto, when are we real? When are we not real? Like that whole thing, I was like, what a profound set of questions. I didn't even know that about that story. Because in the movie, the tin man is just the tin man. Mm -hmm. I think that's very interesting. Not only you, many you know, I don't like the concept of adults or child, but right. I feel like many grown-ups don't read picture books, don't read children literacy because they feel like that's for kids. That the, the that's kind of the level is too low. Is you know, I have way much more knowledge to read more complicated stuff. But the thing they didn't real or were not aware of is in those great children's books we have the the world's best illustrators spend months or years to just have this you know one little book and also our writers spend months or years to write this story which probably only has 300 words <laughs> and it, it makes sense to the kids and also it makes sense to us, to the, to the grown-ups. It's just because it's so, so, how to say, well-written in the simple 
yet philosophical way that you can get so much more from it. Like one of my favorite picture books. While you were talking about picture books, I was just so excited. I just were like, oh yes, I have a whole bunch of picture books that I want to share with you. Like one of my favorite um, is uh, The Fabric by Leo Leone. Um, that book is so fascinating. What it's is it called? Fabric. Yeah, that book is talk about, you know, a bunch of rats. They are a family and, you know, usually in autumn, they will collect a bunch of food to get ready for winter, right? But this little mouse and his name is Frederick, he doesn't do all those labor work. He just like walking around, appreciating the sun, looking at the leaves, enjoying the colors and all that. But, you know, amazingly, his family members didn't blame him or didn't complain about him not doing job on the desk him. He's doing his job. And when winter comes, they started to enjoy the food they have been collected by, by the middle of winter, their food are almost out and everyone was kind of starving. And this Frederick just started to share the colors he saw, share the poem he wrote and share the sunshine and share those beautiful views with his family members and his family members had a great time even with lacking of food. And mm. they realized, oh, Frederick is a poet. He doesn't do the labor work. He collected colors, he collected words, mm. he collected poems. And I was like, that's what we talk about here. That's what we're dreaming of. But in, the, in one picture book, it talks about that in such a beautiful way that kids from age two to people at age 90 can't understand and because it's such a short story that I can easily tell you or you can easily read a book in five minutes but that will be in your mind for a long time. I want to ask you about your children's book. So you've written a children's book called What is Time? Yes. What is the book about? So we always we talk a lot about time and how to be slow, how to live in that slowness and how to live in the stillness. And I just feel like this is such an important concept. And also the more we reflect on the clock or the linear time, I start to think about since when we only consider the clock time as time and stop questioning. And then I think about the children, I was like, I believe their way of their thinking of time is different. So I started to have this philosophical dialogue during my philosophy for children salon with them. And it's fascinating how they approach time before the teachers or the parents taught them how to read the clock time. So that kind of inspired me. And I decided to write this uh, story that and stand time from different perspectives, um, from the trees perspectives, from the sunrise sunset perspectives, mm. from the animals perspectives, from the busy animals perspectives, or from the lazy, the so-called lazy animals perspectives, what is time? And just, for, just to provide a platform for the children and their parents or the teachers to talk about time in a wider way rather than the first lesson is to teach you how to read the clock. 
I want to inspire them from the beginning before we, we push them to accept one way of the time. So tell us, uh, tell us a way that you thought about time or that children might think about time from say the perspective of a tree or an animal. Um, so this one, well, the, the children came out multiple ways. They wrote poem about time and they said, look at the dust on their side of the window. Time passed by from there and the trees turn yellow and comes back to green and time passed by from there. And they also talk about uh, when they forget about time. It's like when I'm playing, when I'm happy, I don't remember time until my parents um, tell me when to go and I hate that. So they said, if you don't tell me what time is, time can not be existing in my life because when I play, when I'm happy, I, I forget about time. Mm -hmm. And they also talk about what time brought to them. They are very aware of that the parents are older than them and the wrinkles, but they don't consider that as a bad thing. They just feel it's, uh, it's different. And they also can tell from their small shoes to bigger shoes and the pictures of them being a baby to now, they just think time is so fascinating. Time means change, time means growing, time means different. Hmm. Are there any other um, things that we didn't talk about that you feel really moved or passionate about? Yeah, if we have any parents as our listener or you know, K to 12 teachers, I really want to say that don't be don't be that uh, eager to introduce the children the big philosophers' names. Start with their own questions. Start their own questions are the questions the philosophers have been thinking of for thousands of years. But the, the children are already thinking of them. We just need to continue the dialogue, talk to them. I think that's more important than introduce them. Um, Aristotle has think about this. Heidegger has talked about this. No, the kids, our kids are thinking about them now. People, people usually consider the philosophical discussion is just like, is a forever going on thing that it's kind of not really to practice, but I think it, it is, it's like the concept we are thinking about is always related to the problems. Otherwise, the concept is meaningless without the problems. And think about all the concepts we have been talking about and all the concepts we are fascinated about, they're all related to the real problems in the world. So I think that's the meaning of the philosophical thinking because it just, help us to, to think, to reflect, and to practice. It's not only in our mind, it's also in our practice. Philosophy is about everyday life, in my opinion. Dr. Shofei Han is currently teaching at a foreign language academic magnet school as a teacher. She holds a PhD in curriculum and instruction and an MA in philosophy with a minor in women's and gender studies 
from Louisiana State University. Dr. Han recently published her first children's picture book titled, What is Time? It is published in Chinese as one of the Philosophy for Children's book series. You can contact Shofei via email, H-A-N-S-H-A-O-F-E-I-C-N at gmail.com. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Shofei. We discuss building wonder into the classroom, how philosophers approach big questions, more about how children philosophers think about time, and the impacts of COVID-19 on our current state of being. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader.